Is the everyday world making us sick? Can we hold companies responsible for the health consequences of their products and services? How do you design health into the operating system of civilization? I'm Bon Koo, the host of Design Lab. It's a show where we explore the question, how might we design healthier lives? Today, we have two amazing guests. Steve Downs is the co-founder of Building H. It's a very cool project to build health into everyday life. Steve is a lecturer at the D School at Stanford, and he's an adjunct faculty member at the New York University's Tisch School of Arts. Prior to his role at Building H, Steve was the Chief Technology and Strategy Officer at the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. He led a transformation of the foundation's approach to program strategy. He held many important roles and played a hand in groundbreaking projects. He was the CIO, the first team leader of the Pioneer Portfolio, the Assistant Vice President of the Health Group. He developed and supported work in public health informatics and projects that explore how consumer technologies can be leveraged to better engage patients and improve their care. Prior to the foundation, Steve served as the Director of Technology Opportunities Program at the U.S. Department of Commerce. He was a research fellow at the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. In 2010, he was inducted into the American College of Medical Informatics. Steve is joined by Thomas Getz, who is a journalist, author, and entrepreneur. He uses data design and stories to help people understand and navigate complicated issue in their lives. Thomas is the co-founder of Iodine, an award-winning website that was acquired by GoodRx, America's leading source for prescription drug savings. There, he serves as the chief of research. Thomas was previously the executive editor at Wired Magazine, where he wrote dozens of cover stories on technology, science, and medicine. Thomas began his career as a reporter at the Village Voice and the Wall Street Journal. His writing has repeatedly been selected for the best American science writing and best technology writing anthologies. He served as the first entrepreneur in residence for the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, where he founded Flip the Clinic. It's a program that works to transform the practitioner-patient encounter. His 2010 talk on visualizing medical data has been viewed more than half a million times. Next month on May 23rd and 24th, I will be in New York City to attend the Fortune Brainstorm Design event. I attended one before and it's by far one of the best conferences ever. It's a two-day curated experience that will feature passionate design professionals They will inspire you, and they will help you reimagine the future through design. Learn how design is being used to solve the world's biggest problems. And the coolest thing is many of the speakers that you can connect with at the conference have been featured on Design Lab. I can't wait to see some of my favorite people like Antoinette Carroll, John Maida, George I, Rachel Dikas, Georgia Lupi, Krista Donaldson. As an exclusive offer for listeners of this show, use the code Design Lab for a 20% discount on registration. For more information or to register, go to fortunebrainstormdesign.com. Now, here's my conversation with Steve Downs and Thomas Getz. Steve and Thomas, welcome to Design Lab. I'm so stoked that you're here. Thank you for having us. We're thrilled about this conversation. It's up our alley. (laughs) Yeah, very happy to be here. I love this movement that you have created. It's called Building H. What is it? Thomas, you want to give the the origin story? Sure. So so Building H stands for health, not a surprise for this audience. 
But it is, in some ways, our way to sell public health to audiences and constituencies that would otherwise not think that public health is part of what they do or their responsibility. You know, this audience, all of us have all heard about social determinants of health. Other industries don't think about that at all. Mm. Um, They don't think about the social constructs that have health impacts. They don't think about the way their companies, their products and services have health impacts. And so Building H is a way to frame these these arguments to this new audience or to these new audiences. We specifically look at four industries that we believe are kind of the fabric of everyday life. So transportation, food, entertainment, and what is the last one, Steve? Housing. 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 I was I always think <laughs> communities, but it's yeah, it's housing. So those four industries really do create the infrastructure of everyday life. And so what we're trying to do is to get the companies, the designers, the creators, the product makers in those industries to care about the health outputs of their products and and to, to try to change it. And, and part of what happens, we, we've both spent a lot of time in digital health. You know, Thomas is a, is a digital health entrepreneur and, and journalist, and, and I was funding a lot of efforts in, in digital health when I was at Robert Johnson Foundation. And as we started to look at it, we were thinking, God, you know, if you think about it, a Fitbit tells me you how many steps you've taken and how many steps you've made. It doesn't make it any easier to take them right? mm. or to get them in your day. We we're thinking all this technology is going towards sort of helping people overcome the challenge of being healthy. And yet at the same time, we're plowing a lot of it into innovations that are actually creating the conditions that make it hard to be healthy in the first place. And that's what we wanted to focus on. What inspired both of you to get into this work? Because you know you didn't go to medical school like me. You guys aren't doctors, and why do you care about health so much? But that's, that's <laughs> true. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, but I don't want to go on a rant too early. But yes, but we, no, we, I about, want the rant. Doctors are trained to treat individual patients, not to do the work of public health. So public health is a much different enterprise than medicine. And I think too often people look to medicine mm. to solve the problems that society is creating. So that's what public health does. You know, I have a background in public health in addition to the other stuff I've done. Steve has a background in in health policy. That's where public health often happens. And so one of the observations we had was that it's the daily life. It's the way we live our daily lives Mm. that has this kind of rampaging building effect of ill health, not just to individuals, but to the whole population. And so, you know, that's where we feel like, okay, if we can get not just people in medicine, not just people in healthcare, not just people in public health, but all these other industries that that actually are creating the impacts, are creating the food that is not mm-hmm. healthy, is creating the communities, the housing that is is not putting us in contact with our social networks, et cetera, et cetera. Those are the people we we want to get to to improve health. Yeah. And, and Bon, actually, the, the story for me is that my degree is actually in technology and public policy. I was actually very focused on kind of what we used to call telecommunications policy before it just became the internet. <laughs> um, but I actually kind of randomly got connected with Michael McGinnis, who is a, a legend in the public health field, mm-hmm. and wound up taking a job in his office looking at, you know, sort of how do we apply new technologies to health and healthcare issues. And then eventually he recruited me to Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. And I spent years and years there just working on big national health problems. 
have to remind people all the time that even though I'm a doctor, I don't really work on public health issues. I work in a human repair shop. I treat the complications of when public health goes badly. Mm. So I think, you know, many people get confused, like what's the difference between medicine and public health? And we'll dig deeper into that. One thing I like to do is read some quotes I found about that you have said on the internet. Is this like a Jimmy Kimmel bit where you, is it gotcha? <laughs> it's not, it's not a gotcha. I thought they were great quotes. So I'm going to start off with you, Thomas. You said donuts are everywhere, irresistible morsels that are irredeemingly awful for us. The everyday world we inhabit is making us sick. Can you talk about that more? <laughs> well, so when I was doing my MPH, when I was not supposed to be thinking about additional degrees, one of my favorite courses was health economics. And I learned, uh, or I was reintroduced to the marginal utility curve, this idea that you know the highest unit value that we get or that the highest, oftentimes the highest value of a commodity is the first unit or the second unit. But as you kind of progress, you get diminishing utility out of those units. And ultimately you get decreasing and even in potentially negative utility and donuts are, and the way the great example is pizza or donuts. So like that first piece of pizza tastes great. Second piece of pizza is satisfying, but, but not as good as those first bites. And by the third or fourth piece, you're really not enjoying it. It's not providing any value to you. And you kind of feel that intrinsically and, and kind of your, your body maybe in an unconscious way. Anyway, so I, the idea of utility and marginal utility in the healthcare context is I think incredibly important. But what we've done is we built a civilization, a environment that is all about those first couple of units of utility. This is really nerdy, but those first, <laughs> if we... Like we've really made it very easy to get those donuts. And even though, and to get infinite supply of donuts, even though they're not actually that good for us and one at most is sufficient. So thinking about how we can counter program against the donuts is part of what we've been trying to do. Steve, you've talked a lot about the operating system mm -hmm. for civilization and how to redesign that. Can you speak more on that? Yeah. So that it was a piece I wrote a few years ago where I was really trying to frame this idea that instead of working on, on what are essentially the, the kind of downstream aspects of health, right? The repair shop aspects or the, you know, the kind of Fitbit approach to things that we needed to actually think about the routines of everyday life and, and design technology uh, with those in mind. And so the, the metaphor I was using was sort of app versus operating system. Right. You know, that we tended to think of health as this sort of separate activity that exists on a layer above our everyday life. You know, so you do all the things you do to get back and forth to work and to go about your day. And then, oh, yeah, I should do a little bit of exercise you know, because uh -huh. my day's been all sedentary. So I have to sort of do this separate thing, you know, uh, which is health. And what I was trying to argue was that instead of treating it like this thin layer on top, like an app, we need to bake it deep into the operating system to really sort of care about it across all of products, right? And I think that's one of the things that we want to see companies do is not say, look, our tech can be used for really cool things to improve health, you know, sort of in isolation, but rather look across the whole range of products and say, do our products make people healthier or less healthy? Mm. Now, when this episode's drop, this episode is going to drop the exact minute that Building H index is going to go live. 
on your website. So what is this building H index? So the building H index is where we are essentially rating company or rating their products really on the ways that they influence the health behaviors of their customers. Essentially, we're, we're going to look at 37 companies across the four industries that Thomas mentioned, entertainment, food, housing, and transportation. And we're essentially what we've done is we've analyzed how do they affect the way people eat? How do they affect the way they get physical activity in their day? We look at their sleep and also social connection and, and a behavior that I think is actually really important, which is spending time outdoors. And so what we did was we analyzed you know, using research about the products, using the published scientific literature and a number of other sources to identify what we think those influences are. And then we turn to a community of people in the health field to actually sort of score them, you know, quantitatively. And so these companies and products get a score. So they get a building age score and they are ranked. So there's a, in some ways, the most healthy company or the, the company that contributes most to the positive impact of their, their users. And then there's the other end of the scale where you have companies that have kind of a net negative impact on the health of their their users and customers. So it's a quantitative rating scale, correct? Is it like zero to a hundred or A, yeah. B, C, D type it, of thing? It, it is zero to a hundred uh, with sort of 50 being the neutral point. Essentially, your net influence is, is neutral. Let's talk about some of these ratings. So you rate actually these entertainment companies that probably all of us use on a daily basis. So what did a Netflix get in terms of the rating? You can look it up if you need, because they didn't really get a good rating. No, they didn't. They got they actually got 20 on our scale of 100. 20 on 100. Yeah. Like that's, a, that's an F pretty much. Well, I don't necessarily want to put academic grades on this. And, <laughs> and, I, and I, think, I think it's actually really important context here is that, you know, I, I think we have to recognize that this is new for a lot of these companies, right? Nobody has said to them in the past, it's really important that you take into account the health impacts of your products on your customers. So I, I often joke that it's it's a little like giving them a pop quiz on a subject they didn't know they were taking. And so what matters less is about how they score now, but what they do next. And we can get into that in a while. You know, the reason the score is low is, first of all, if you think about video streaming, what is it? It's watching television. <laughs> yeah, Watching television is typically something you're sitting down or lying down on a couch. It's extremely sedentary. You know, you're almost always indoors when you're doing it. And there's actually literature that says that people tend to eat badly when they're watching TV. And so if you look at the various things that video streaming does, you know, it's probably negative on food. It's negative on sleep to be sure. It's uh, so it's, negative on sleep for me. Like I can't even get into these like Netflix shows that people watch or all these shows like Game of Thrones and all that, because once I taste one of those donuts, I want to eat the whole thing. So literally I need to, like, I can't sleep until like I finish the series. So well, I spent days not sleeping. Cause I'm like up at three, four o'clock in the morning trying to get through these episodes. Well, and one of the things that we actually did, you know, as, as part of this process is we did a, a bunch of consumer surveys and we asked people questions like this. So we asked people who did video streaming and not specific to Netflix or any of the streamers, but we said, how many nights a week, you know, do you feel like your sleep is affected negatively mm -hmm. by streaming? And so we had actual data from that, that we could put into the analysis. And I think one of the things that is important to think about is how these products are designed and engineered and what they are engineered to be successful at. So like binge watching, it's a very, it's a very deliberate decision 
that, you know, Netflix drops the entire season all at once. Yeah. Right. Because they want you to binge. They want you to just go from one to the other and then they autoplay it. Right. So the default is an autoplay mode where it just rolls into the next episode. I freaking hate that autoplay mode. Exactly. And they do that for very rational reasons, right? Because it gets people on balance. People might say they hate it, but they, they, I'm sure I don't have the data, but large numbers of people flow just from one to the other. And they're like, okay, one more. Okay. One more. So, and so those are the incentives, right? And I think what we're trying to do more holistically is to get other, put in other incentives or other possible incentives on the table. Mm. Yeah. I think, I think one of the things that was sort of interesting actually about the streaming companies is how similar they are. So Mm. every single one does autoplay. The differences are, do they do it in five seconds or 30 seconds, or do they let the credits roll before they, they go onto it? And the frightening thing actually, or not frightening, but the, I, I think one of the upsetting things is they even do it for children's programming. There's actually an entertainment company that got a really good score that I think most listeners probably don't know about. Can you can you talk about that company? Yeah, so that's Niantic, which which is the company that makes Pokemon Go and makes some other games that are essentially about getting out into the physical world, you know, the world outside our homes and and sort of interacting with kind of using augmented reality, sort of interacting with objects. It's almost like they're digital objects that are attached to physical places. And so if you think about that, you know, as an alternative form of entertainment, it is not sitting on a couch <laughs> looking at a screen. It is going outdoors. It is moving around from place to place. And these games tend to be really social, you know, mm. so that you often uh, do it with friends and, and see a lot of people uh, while you're doing it. So you can imagine they score very well on that basis. And I think it's important to, to note that those games are hugely popular, right? I think one of the one of the things we try to emphasize is we're not suggesting that the products are going to be worse for you, right? Or not as fun. Mm-hmm. So if you're creating things that are not as satisfying, like whatever, the, the salad at McDonald's or carob instead of chocolate, right? Those don't work generally because people don't want that. People yeah. don't go to McDonald's for a salad. So what we need to think about it is like, okay, how do you create products that are delightful and wonderfully entertaining and as rewarding to our kind of base instincts as the other games, but actually have a net positive impact. Mm. So I think that's an example of a great way that, that that game has been engineered for health positive outcomes. The other thing that I was going to add is that I think what Thomas is getting at is a, is a principle that we, we actually call pull over push. And you know, if you think about it, a lot of things are designed to push people to do things that they don't naturally want to do, right? So if you think of products that prompt you and say, hey, go do this thing, you know, pull is when you design something that's attractive, that draws somebody to it, and the behavior comes with that, you know? And the two examples I often give on this is um, Google in its its sort of uh, dining cafeterias or restaurants for employees was trying to get the employees to eat more vegetables. And they came upon a brilliant idea. Let's make them taste really good, right? You know, so instead of saying, come on, everybody, you're supposed to eat your vegetables. They're just saying, we're going to make these vegetables taste better than the other food. And you could argue that Elon Musk has had this strategy with Tesla, right? He could have come up with a really boring car that was no fun to drive and said, but it's really important for the planet that y'all drive it. But as we know, he did the opposite, right? He created a really fun car that people want and the environmental benefits come with it. What, what I love about the index is you actually give companies 
opportunities to become healthier. So you're not just saying, "Hey, you suck, Netflix." You you know you got like a twenty out of a hundred. But how can Netflix become better? What's the opportunity for Netflix to stop making their shows so freaking addictive? So I don't have to stay <laughs> up late at night and doing or not dropping all shows at once. Like they got to yep. make money, right? Yeah. So I think Netflix is in an interesting position because you know they're a subscription model, right? You know, so in theory, we don't have to watch five hours of Netflix a day in order to value Netflix and and pay the fifteen bucks a month to join them. So yeah, I mean, certainly there's the binge watching thing. You know, at a minimum, they could say we're not going to do binge watching for children or autoplay for children.、Mm. They could say we're going to make autoplay a, a feature that is controllable by the user, so the、mm. user can turn it off. Hulu actually does that,、huh. or you know, or they could eliminate it entirely. You know, so that's a possibility. Well, I was just going to say, my car when I'm on a long car ride tells me to take a break. Little thing pops up and it says time to take a break.、Huh. And it, you can say no. It at least externalizes that idea that that oh, this, there's a behavior here that I might want to change. Yeah, it's like how Instagram you could put like I put a time of like you、yeah. know twenty minutes a day or something like that, and when I go over it, it's just a prompt like you've been on it too much. So they could definitely do something like that. I think the other thing they could do is if you know how Apple's iOS and and Google's Android both have kind of a bedtime mode feature where you、mm. you essentially tell the service this is what I like to go to bed every day, and then they honor that basically、mm. they honor that by introducing friction into the UI and sort of making you say yeah I I really do want to use my phone even though it's my bedtime you know all the streaming services could do something like that、um, mm. and just sort of put it in and. You know, again, so maybe they don't autoplay episodes after you hit your bedtime. You know,、mm. and you can still override it, <laughs> but they they can essentially say we care about your sleep, we know you have intentions around your sleep, and we want to help you meet those intentions.、Hmm. I'm curious to know about some of the transportation companies that you rated. Why did Lyft get a higher score than Uber? Lyft does a couple of of things I think that are a little bit different. One is I think they actually subsidize rides for low-income customers to get to grocery stores.、Hmm. You know, so they're helping out with the fresh food in that sense. Another is they、um, they integrate public transit directions into their app, which Uber does not. And I think a third piece is I think they're just putting a little more attention on the biking part of their service. You、okay. know, the kind of ride、uh, bike share as opposed to ride share. So they probably did a little better on that as well. I'm curious to know. Do you think? Companies are going to start hating you guys for creating this index. <laughs> well, I think you know over the last few years, last decade, you've seen this kind of flourishing of ESG ratings, so environmental, social governance ratings, which is a what a yardstick. So companies are rated on these measures, and then investors use an ESG rating to determine whether certain investors, I should say, whether they want to invest in companies that have a higher ESG score. A lot of that ESG rating and valuation is done in along lines of you know governance, which means how well is the company managed? Is it transparent? And then the environmental stuff is sustainability and and whatnot. In theory, social the the S takes into account some of these health considerations, but it's compared to the governance stuff and the environmental stuff, it's it's very much an afterthought right now in、mm. in the ESG framework. There is as even I have learned. There's a whole ecosystem of certifications and ratings bodies, and we're definitely, in some sense, becoming another or, or part of it is another one of those. But we're really focused on. We don't think anybody's looked at health as something、mm-hmm. to 
to hold companies to account for. Mm. So we think it's actually a huge opportunity. Steve has done a terrific job of reaching out to all the companies and soliciting mm. their input and making sure that the Wall Street Journal, we call it the no surprises rule. You don't write about a company unless they unless they have a sense of what's coming. Mm. Um, and we do that. Like we're this little nonprofit, but still we've actually had positive engagements with various companies. So the companies respond, they're like, did they yeah, say not all that's a that's a bogus rating? Like I can't believe you yeah. gave us that rating. So what we did is it's essentially when we've drafted our kind of written analysis, that's when we reach out to them and and we're really looking for three things. So, you know, sort of the first is validation. Like, have we gotten anything wrong, factually wrong about your product. The second is to just get their point of view. Are there things that we've said that you disagree with? Are there things that we missed that you think we should count? And then the third is we often have questions about, you know, sort of the data related to the products that that would help us make a better assessment if we had it. So we ask mm-hmm. those as well. And as Thomas said, the engagement is all over the map. You know, you can imagine that some really big companies and even some small ones don't know who we are and are just like, yeah, I don't have time for this. And then some, you know, both small and large companies have come back to us in very engaged ways and have, mm. you know, given us their feedback and filled in some information gaps. So, I mean, back to the question of, of will they hate us? You know, I hope not because we're trying to really take a, a constructive posture here. Mm. You know, we're we're not here to sort of say these companies are bad and, and they should all go away or anything like that. I think what we're saying is, that, you know, this stuff is important. It's new for them to think this way. We mm-hmm. want them to consider what we're saying. We've offered opportunities to sort of say, here's some things you might think about that would sort of bring your score up. But it's not about bringing your score up. It's about you know having a more positive impact on your customers. Yeah, and and we hope that a lot of them you know will take that sort of perspective that hey, it's good to know about these impacts, and this does make us think. Mm. You think it's going to be. Uh- controversial like when doctors started to get ratings we hated it you know in in 1990 the new york state commissioner of health had a public reporting on outcomes after a coronary bypass surgery in hospital mortality for new york state hospitals revolted they hated that but they're being judged on a medical outcome like this is this is what we do i think and now we're like yeah that, that was a great thing to be done but you're judging companies that aren't healthcare companies on health. Do you think that some companies would go, well, that's kind of unfair? Well, that's the whole point. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, sure. I think there, look, companies are getting rated on all sorts of things by all sorts of organizations, as I said. So there, it shouldn't be a surprise to them, this kind of, the the subject matter might be, or the, the kind of points of contention, but ultimately what we're trying to do, just as these products have an impact on their users' behavior, we're trying to have an impact on the company's behavior and try to help them understand that these issues have really been invisible, right? Like these metrics, the five behaviors, sleep and eating and and getting outside, those are largely not visible in the kind of user chain or the user journey that these companies map out. By putting them out there, hopefully they'll recognize that there is an opportunity. We always try to talk about these as opportunities for the companies because ultimately if your users come out healthier, and feeling more positive and sustained by using your product, that's a good metric. And mm-hmm. not a single one of these companies is not highly, highly metric driven, right? Mm-hmm. Again, it, it goes to what I was saying earlier. They are measuring OKRs and KPIs to the nth degree to optimize certain outcomes. We're just trying to put some other outcomes out there as, as possible things to measure against. Mm-hmm. The other thing that may be controversial is is that, you know, 
there is this always a discussion, I think, in health and behavior about the role of individual responsibility versus yeah. the role of, let's say, societal conditions. And sure, Netflix could be like, you don't have to binge watch the entire uh, series on a Thursday night. I think that's the thing. And this is where we get into things like design and behavior. And that, yes, at one level, we all have free will. At another level, if you surround people with a product environment that is is sort of nudging them in all sorts of directions, and they take those directions, you shouldn't be surprised. You know, one of the ways I, I sometimes talk about this is that, you know, I think a sort of signal kind of metric is uh, the number of Americans who are now living with obesity, mm. you know, which is 42.4% of American adults, Wow! right? And that's triple since 1960 or so. And that doesn't include the 30 plus percent who are also overweight, right? Um, so let's say 70% of the country. And if you created a product and everybody used that product and essentially 70% of them had an unhealthy result from that product, I think you would say it's a design flaw. Right? You wouldn't just say, oh, everybody's using it wrong. They should use it better. You'd say something about what we've created is leading to this result. And yeah, while individually, we all have the ability to make our own decisions, on aggregate, most of the time, you know, I think the products are leading people to certain places. Yeah. We've been, like for us, a big kind of epiphany was reading the work of Daniel Lieberman. Lieberman, yeah. And the, looking at the kind of, we have the millions of years of evolution created these vessels for certain purposes and functions. And now we have created a ecosystem that not only no longer has those purposes and functions as necessary functions because it's we've solved those problems, but it's engineered to satiate all of our worst instincts and the ones that that we were rewarded for because they were so infrequent and and like you know salt and sugar and fat. Like we needed to crave those because we needed those in our system. Now they're ubiquitous. And so our modern life is satiating the wrong kind of impulses. So we have to be thinking about the kind of context that we've stuck our bodies in and thinking about, again, how can we counter program in a way that doesn't just leave it up to individuals to somehow have some incredible sheer strength of will to do better than everything that everyday life is telling them to do. There's, there's too many of those tasty donuts for sure. It's impossible to resist all about on the individual, but you know, the first day of medical school, we took this oath of doing no harm as a doctor. Do you think these companies can have some sort of like design principle of creating products and services that don't lead to bad health behavior? Or is that even possible for some of these companies? This is an interesting question. And I was thinking about this the other day and, and talking with a friend of mine about it, which is, you know, health doesn't have to be everything all the time. Right. I mean, I'm fine with a company saying, you know what, we're delivering a service that's really important to people. And yes, it may lead to this unhealthy behavior some of the time. And yes, it may lead to that unhealthy behavior some of the time. But on balance, we think we're actually providing a positive experience in that person's life. I think that's fine. But I think they should own it, right? You know, mm -hmm. to sort of say, hey, we know that it has this side effect and we're concerned about it and we try to minimize it, but you know, overall we're okay with doing what we're doing. So I don't think there's an absolute, you know, we can never do anything that's unhealthy. I wouldn't want to push that. Do you anticipate the public talking more about 
kind of like these role of products and services have on our health in our lives? I really hope so. I, th- I think, you know, we sort of been talking about this term, you know, the product environment. I think some of your listeners may be familiar, I, I don't know, on uh, with the public health term, the built environment, right? We mm-hmm. talk about how, you know, when you have things like sidewalks or no sidewalks, you know, that affects the way people, whether they walk or bike or those kinds of things. We think this idea of the product environment needs to be named. It needs to be measured. Yeah. It needs to be talked about. You know, it is in effect a determinant of health to use mm. again some more public health language. And we need to shift it in a positive direction. So we want people to talk about it. And we welcome debate. I've in the past, you know, been quoted as saying it's hard for Americans to be healthy. And people have said, that's ridiculous. <laughs> you know, anybody can do push-ups, you know, uh, anybody can choose to eat right, you know. But I think again, for all the reasons we've talked about before, we know that on balance it's it is hard for people. It takes it takes constant vigilance. And there's a huge equity component here, yeah. right? Like it's hardest for the people who have the least resources and the people who have the least time to think about their health. So yes, Bone, I think people should be thinking about kind of the, what is the outcome of the products and services they use? But many people don't have time to think about that. Yeah, And they don't have the, and even if they did, they don't have the choices. And I think that's one of the things that we don't talk about enough at Building H, but it is this, there is a massive equity component to it that, you know, if we actually get some of these companies to, to think about how they're having an impact on their customers, it might be helping the people who, who otherwise would never have a chance mm. to go to the gym or take a walk around the block or whatever it is. There's a phrase I really like about this. It comes from Jacob Hacker, who's a a political scientist. And he talks about the idea that we often gravitate towards private solutions to public problems, right? So society creates all sorts of conditions that result in problems. And then our answer is to kind of, you know, give individuals tools and products to help them overcome those problems. But, you know, again, it's the conditions that we create that are the source of the problem. And we so often don't then choose to to focus on that. And that's what we're trying to do here. It reminds me of what I thought about food before this interest in food, you know, where you get it from, where it stores the health benefits from a plant-based diet. I didn't think about that before growing up because there's little discourse on it. We, we didn't really talk about it. And like simple food documentaries have like changed the way I eat. Like I watched Game Changers a couple of years ago and I had to believe in this myth of like, you need to eat a lot of protein and animals in order to get strong. And that like documentary was like, no, you don't, you can eat plants. And that like literally kind of changed the way I eat. You know, I significantly decreased my meat consumption. Uh, So I hope this index will get people to start thinking about this connection between the products and services that companies produce and this linkage between health. Because often I think that's something that's not really clear cut to a lot of people. I think that's right. And I think, you know, it's, it's funny. There's the old joke about the two fish, you know, who swim up to one another and one of them says, hey, how's the water today? And the other says, what's water? And I think the product environment is like that for us, right? We don't think about it. It just is. It's what's out there. It's what we live our days in. And so we don't necessarily think of it as, influencing what we do or, you know, having this power over us, but you know, it does. And we have to think about it consciously and think about it intentionally and and about saying, what do we want that to be in order to create the kind of lifestyles where people will really thrive Mm. and not get sick? I mean, every time I work in the emergency room, I 
literally see the consequences of a system that was not designed for human health, whether it's you know patients coming in with a myocardial infarction because they had a sedentary lifestyle because they're consuming products and services that are not designed for an active lifestyle or bicycle injuries from a poorly designed urban planning. So I think, you know, I, I'm optimistic. I, I hope you can change things, but I'm also pessimistic because I've been working in the emergency room for 15 years. I'm like, well, so many of these problems and these consequences are from just bad design, whether mm-hmm. it's in built environment or yeah. products or services or city planning. Give me some hope here. Well, it's a woolly problem. So when Steve and I, <laughs> Steve and I, it, Steve and I first had our observation about this kind of, as I used to call it, civilization is out to destroy us. And <laughs> we've toned down the rhetoric since then. <laughs> yeah, but that was it. All we had was this kind of realization that, oh my God, everything that we encounter in everyday life is bad for us. And the hospitals are not ever going to fix this problem. Len Syme, one of my um, heroes of public health from Berkeley, talked about building that. And he talked about your hospital, but how it was built at the bottom of a cliff. And the road was the top of the cliff. And then everyone, the pileup of cars at the bottom of the cliff, and there was the hospital. And so the, the answer is not to fund the hospital or make a big net or something. It's to move the road at the top of the cliff. The metaphor goes a lot of different ways. I think we really have to think about how do we change that course? And it is this kind of seemingly insurmountable thing. But what we tried to do with the index was be very specific and be very granular about the behaviors that we're talking about, to be specific about the industries we're talking about, specific about the opportunities they have and you know the, the kind of product prompts. And hopefully that creates a, a dialogue around how we build products, how we measure the income of products, what we incentivize in product teams and design teams and companies to build for. And I think that's where, you know, the fact that we have the conversation, the fact that companies are taking our, our calls and, and responding to us, that's progress. That's yeah. better than, than what I thought, where I thought we'd be five years ago with this. Here's what gives me hope. If you think about the product environment we have today, we didn't get here through incompetence of these industries. We got mm-hmm. here because these industries have been absolutely brilliant at meeting the needs that they perceived that we had, right? They have made delightful consumer experiences. If you think about cars, if you think about TV, even the food is is just precision engineered to be stuff that we crave, right? What happened is I think we got here through essentially misdirected brilliance, Mm. right? We have been sort of following the blueprint of the Jetsons for the last 60 years, you know, and trying to create this society where we don't have to move and we don't have to have any effort and we can get everything you know, from inside our houses. So to the extent that we can start to take the knowledge that we have, that this vision is not good for us, right? If we keep on working in the direction that we've been working and optimizing for convenience and comfort, it has a bad result. And so if we can start to then target, you know, some better things to optimize for, I have enormous, you know, faith in the ability of our industries to deliver that. You know, I think that the challenge is, is sort of establishing those alternative visions and creating the urgency around pursuing them uh, with all of our capabilities. I think that's a great way to end. And listeners can find the index on your website, buildingh.org. Is that correct? Yes, that's correct. There's a donate button there. So if they, they're really inspired, yeah. they can donate. But we really want, I mean, we have a we have a newsletter. It's an awesome newsletter. 
the best newsletter on health in the United States. A thousand percent. <laughs> I, I am I am signed up for it. I love it. I know you are. Um, <laughs> we, we, we look at our list very closely. Um, but yeah, no, it's really to join join the idea and join the effort yeah. and be part of this community. And you know, we think it's going in the right direction. Yeah. It's big, but we started we wanted to start somewhere with the index. And that's what we're excited about. Steve and Thomas, thank you for being on Design Lab. Thank you so much. It's been fun. Thanks again to our sponsor of this episode, Fortune Brainstorm Design. Remember to use the code DesignLab for a discount on event registration. Go to fortunebrainstormdesign.com to register and sign up for our newsletter. Every week we'll send you some cool stuff to read. You can find the link to the newsletter on top of our Twitter account, which is at DesignLabPod, or you can find the link in our show notes. You can find Steve tweeting at S-T-E-P-H-E-N-J-D-O-W-N-S and Thomas at T-G-O-E-T-Z. And if you haven't done so already, please rate us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Give us five stars. And if you go to Apple Podcasts, leave us a review. We love them. We read every single one. Design Lab was produced by Rob Pugisi. Our theme music was created by Emmanuel Houston and the cover design by Eden Liu. See you next week.